talk. Sometimes you get the guest you want. Sometimes you get the guest you deserve. I've been taking my time. I feel like I'm out of my mind. It feel like my life ain't mine. Welcome to the Inside the Boards podcast. The podcast dedicated to helping you learn to think like a question writer so you can study smarter, not harder, and succeed in medical school. And now here's your host, Patrick Beeman. All right, I am Patrick Beeman. Don't skip ahead. I've got a quick announcement here. And then I'm also going to ask you to stick around at the conclusion of this episode to find out how you can get your USMLE or Comlax exam registration fee paid for. As you might know, our iOS beta app is finally here. It features all four of our podcasts, the USMLE Step 2 Secrets, the Medical Nemesis, the main ITB podcast, and the Study Smarter podcast, which is important because our Step 1 Study Smarter series launches next week. But it also has a number of meditations we built and designed specifically for medical students to help deal with some of that stress during your exam preparation time as well as your clerkships or, you know, whenever you need a little help quelling some of the anxiety and stress that goes along with uh, being a medical student. But we also have examples from our All Audio QBank and the ability to purchase a subscription to either the Step 1 version powered by Lecturio and Exam Circle, or the Step 2 version powered by Online MedEd. When you purchase a subscription to the All Audio QBank, you help us continue the work that we're doing here at Inside the Boards to provide you the best free, high-yield audio resource for medical school. We want your feedback and suggestions on how to improve the app so that we can incorporate them into the bigger, feature-rich app that we're developing for both Android and iOS and hoping to release this summer. But we need your support, we need you to sign up for a subscription, and we need your feedback to make this the best product that we can. So download the app today, just click the link in the show notes, or search the App Store for Inside the Boards, all one word. Today, actually, Chase from the Medical Nemonist podcast is doing the hosting of this show with Dr. Ken Milne, where they get into a little bit about evaluating research studies, which we featured uh, a little bit more uh, in the past a few episodes of our podcast. And kind of they go over the history of FOMED, the free open access medical education concept, which has been very big in the emergency medicine world. But before that goes on, I just want to clear up and draw attention to a little erratum at the end of the episode. Uh, Chase and Dr. Milne at one point seemed to imply that Star Trek is better than Star Wars, and I'm 100% certain that they misspoke, and I just wanted to clear that up. And, you know, that's that's just got to be the case. I mean, I am, of course, at Darth Beeman uh, on Instagram, so I would be remiss if I did not correct that serious, serious error in the content we provide. At any rate, before we get into today's show, here is an example from our All Audio Cue Bank. A 17-year-old Nella Gravid female presents to the emergency department with a two-day history of sharp 10 out of 10 right lower quadrant pain associated with nausea and vomiting. 
She has a history of recurrent sexually transmitted infections which were previously treated with antibiotics. Her last menstrual period was almost two months ago. Physical examination is significant for severe pain in the right lower quadrant, normal bowel sounds, and a negative Rovsing sign. A urinary beta-HCG is positive, and a transvaginal ultrasound is negative for an intrauterine pregnancy. The patient is diagnosed with a pregnancy of unknown location. Which of the following is the most likely location of this patient's pregnancy? Is it A, the endometrium? B, the infundibulum of the fallopian tube? C, the isthmus of the fallopian tube? Or D, the ampulla of the fallopian tube? And the correct answer is D, the ampulla of the fallopian tube. This patient displays the classic signs and symptoms of a ruptured ectopic pregnancy, which is a medical emergency and the number one cause of death for women in the first trimester of pregnancy. The most common location for an ectopic pregnancy, which you must remember, is the ampulla of the fallopian tube. And the board's insider tip for this one? Ectopic pregnancies. Know the location. It's most commonly in the ampulla of the fallopian tube. One thing you must remember, anytime a woman presents with vaginal bleeding in pregnancy, the next step in management in terms of laboratory testing is to get an HCG. While there are always exceptions within medicine, remember, the boards present this material as black and white. The gray world of clinical medicine, of course, is much different. For your purposes in studying for the exams, a negative pregnancy test or urine HCG effectively rules out an ectopic pregnancy. But a positive HCG in a woman with abnormal uterine bleeding, severe pelvic pain, nausea, vomiting, and risk factors for an ectopic pregnancy, such as previous sexually transmitted infections, endometriosis, or fallopian tube surgery, most likely has an ectopic pregnancy. Welcome back to another episode of Inside the Boards podcast. Today we have Dr. Ken Milne here to help discuss and decipher medical research articles. Dr. Milne is the Chief of Staff at South Huron Hospital in Ontario, Canada, and creator of the Knowledge Translation Project, The Skeptical Guide to Emergency Medicine. It's a great podcast, and I'm really glad to have you on, Dr. Milne. I'm glad you uh, think it's a great podcast. I'm pretty proud of it. Actually, I ran into it on accident one time when I was trying to research a little more into emergency medicine uh, in preparation for a rotation. And I think the first one I came across was shout, shout, perk, rule them out. And I'm like, this is so nerdy. I love it. I have to keep listening. (laughs) Well, there is a significant nerd factor. I don't know if there is a validated scale for nerdiness, but it would be up there. Uh, Believe me, everyone on this show would be up there as well. So it's a good company to have. And it looks like you have more letters following your name than most people have in their name. I'm just going for the alphabet, okay? Yeah, you know, it. Uh, you get motivated by a teacher that says, you know, I don't think you should go on in, uh, into higher education. Maybe a trade would be good for you. And it's sort of a, a way of, you know, 
getting back and the best way of getting back at someone who's been negative is to succeed. And so I'm still working on various parts of the alphabet. Uh, you know, there's no Z or Z yet, but I'm looking forward to obtaining it someday. Uh, looks like you're getting pretty close. I'm counting like 20, 25 letters so far. On top of that, I've seen uh, several education awards and physician awards and just a lot of uh, credentials that you've built up over the years. It's supposed to be lifelong learning. I just took it literally. I just keep on learning. There's not a shift goes by that I don't learn something new. Uh, that's great. So SGEM, or Skeptical's Guide to Emergency Medicine, is, uh, what is it? It's a part of Best Evidence in Emergency Medicine, or the BEAM process. Can you describe that a little bit? Yeah. So more than a dozen years ago, my EBM mentor started a evidence-based medicine project called BEAM, or Best Evidence in Emergency Medicine. And it came out of McMaster University, which is the home of evidence-based medicine. And so he put this uh, faculty together and this process together and started doing these phenomenal critical appraisals. And I was lucky enough to join shortly after they got started and took it from there. And then the SGM grew out of that. Okay. And I don't want to give away too many uh, secrets to the listeners, but I've also heard that Dr. Milne is actually just an alter ego that comes out during the day. And there's a I do have a secret identity and uh, you've just unmasked me, but I don't think it's that much of a secret. I do have an alter ego. Uh, I play bat dog and I, I, I channel my Christian Bale voice and I try to give medical advice and medical information in that auto tone voice. That's awesome. Uh, so we have Bat Doc on the line. Sometimes you get the guest you want. Sometimes you get the guest you deserve. Oh, this is going to be a fun episode. <laughs> hey, anybody who so, tries to make a distinction between education and entertainment doesn't know the first thing about either, and that's Marshall McLuhan. Going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor, Common Bond. We have Pete Wiley here from Common Bond. He is the vice president of student lending. First off, Pete, thanks for taking the time to do this and offer a little bit of information about what you guys are doing. But more so than that, thank you for supporting Inside the Boards. Well, it's my pleasure and thanks for having me. So I met a few people from your team at the AMSA conference just last month, and they got me with the proposition that you guys are able to beat the federal grad plus loans interest rate. Tell me about that. Sure. So, you know, Common Bond's a financial technology leader, and we actually got started lending to business students and uh, have used that experience to design products for medical and dental students that also have interest savings by offering a lower interest rate than the Grad Plus loan, and even in some cases, the, the Stafford loan. Because we've looked into our own data from working with doctors and dentists and seeing the great outcomes that they have to make really strong cases to the investment community that this is a really strong potential pool of customers that deserves a better rate than the, the kind of one size fits all government program where anyone, regardless of course of study, gets that same you know, high interest rate. Totally. And I will say I was military, so I don't have a lot in the way of student loans, but also it comes to saving money. Like you said, my wife 
She is a, a fellow now, and her student loan debt is like about twice as much as a, as our home costs, <laughs> uh, which to me is absolutely crazy. So I guess my question to you would be, can the loan product that you offer, can it replace entirely student loans you'd get from the government? You know, it can if it's the right decision for uh, that student. And, you know, we offer consultations directly over the phone with anyone who's considering our product, kind of walk through once they've had a chance to look at the rates and see what they can get based on their credit history and really explain to them what, what kind of savings are likely. But but yes, you can borrow up to the cost of attendance with Common Bond through our medical student loan. So our product does not have income-based repayment, which the federal products do have. But what we have instead is a $100 a month payment for students while they're in residency. We really worked with medical students to design this product and know that during residency, um, the salaries that are drawn are not sufficient usually to make a full student loan payment. So we've designed it such that $100 is the minimum payment during that time period to make it flexible to match what people are, are, are going through at that time. Okay. For those of you out there who aren't yet worried about managing your finances during residency, especially for those of you who have families, I can tell you it is tough on the $7 an hour salary that you get during residency. So that's definitely a boon. Well, Pete, thank you so much. Go to commonbond.co slash ITB to learn more. As I've said before, when you support ITB's sponsors, you support ITB. So please go check out Common Bond. And now let's get back to the interview. So as far as uh, you've discussed why you started SGEM and being a part of Beam, but I had a specific question about why foam seems to be so popular in emergency medicine more so than a lot of other specialties. Um, emergency medicine tends to be early adopters. And when the idea of FOMED or free open access to medical education came out in 2012 by a few Australians drinking some beer in Ireland, and I believe it was Guinness, but I can't verify that. And uh, they were trying to rebrand or reframe the whole idea of social media because social media comes with a lot of baggage. And they felt that if they rebranded it to free open access to medical education, and again, I don't know what inspired them, but it may have been a few a few pints, um, that FOMED was born. And since they were emergency medicine and critical care docs, it spread very quickly from there. And if you think about it, uh, the stereotype of a, a typical emergency medicine physician is squirrel. And so, you know, the, the whole idea of Twitter and 140 characters, now that they've expanded it to 280, but 140 characters as a method of communication seem to fit the stereotypical personality of the emergency physician. They're going, going, going. They're constantly being stimulated. And then uh, the whole idea uh, of this ethos about it being free and that patients in the worst time of their life, in critical care, they're experiencing an emergency, they're in life or death. There shouldn't be paywalls up between the physician and the information. And I should say clinician because it, it takes a team. It's not just about physicians. It's not just about PAs and NPs and 
RNs. It's everybody has to come together and work together in concert for that patient. And there shouldn't be paywalls preventing you from getting access to the best medical information. And so sort of with the rapid fire and the leveling of the playing field and the shrinking of the world and the electronic media and all this stuff coming together in this wonderful thing, the lack of paywalls so that patients get the best care based on the best evidence. And I really, it really resonated with me and my project started in actually in September of that year, I was formulating it through the summer and boom, we just seemed to have some synchronicity. And I came out at the same time with my skeptic's guide to emergency medicine. Wow. Yeah, I definitely agree. Those paywalls can be quite a hindrance and you're just adding more uncertainty to the profession and more trouble, more expense. And that's not good patient care. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but is medical school free? Oh, far from it. Yeah. And so, you know, you guys are graduating with phenomenal, like I could say huge, but your your guys are getting huge debts now. And it's just unbelievable and tend to say, okay, and on top of that, for your continuing medical education, we'll throw up all these paywalls. You have to you have to um subscribe to these really expensive journals uh that come in the mail. I mean, it's it's just we need to remove that and we need to cut that knowledge translation window down from over ten years to less than one year by having free open access to medical education. Yeah. I guess that's why things like uh, Sci-Hub have popped up over the years to give free journal access, but that's a whole nother topic. So in SGEM, there are a few steps that you seem to follow through every episode with every article that you, you review. And I was hoping to, to briefly go over some of those and sort of give the step-by-steps for students to follow when they're assessing their own research articles or reading for studies for clinical advice. I suppose the first thing to start with would be the PICO. Um, I don't think it is. No. Okay. I think the first thing to think about is what music from the 1980s will go with this topic and really resonate with the audience. (laughs) Because, I mean, uh, and this week's episode was on um, uh, giving naloxone to suspected opioid overdoses. So it was, wake me up before you go, go, because I'm not planning on going solo. And as you can see, I can't sing, but boy... That 80s catalog, that canon is embedded. And why can I remember every lyric from every 80s song? But, you know, I can't remember the 11 diagnostic criteria for systemic lupus. It's just one of those quirks. So, yeah, um, people ask me, do you start with the music? The answer, I just want to clear this up. Okay, Chase? No. What I pick is the topic. In fact, I pick the paper comes first and then the music just flows from there. Uh, You do have a great selection from the episodes that I've heard so far. (laughs) Well, we have seven seasons on Spotify, and I got a nice little uh, tweet the other day from a a pediatric surgeon in the UK who said this morning for his playlist in his OR was SGM season five. And I'm like, oh my (laughs) God, it's just hilarious. Yes. um, So uh, there is a five-step process, go figure, that I've put together. Uh, My daughter actually the other day said, you know, dad, you could always count to six by including your other hand. But I like five because, you know, I can count to it on one hand. So yeah, there's a five-step process and you mentioned the PICO and that's sort of a generalized away approach to take it. We typically start with the PICO, as you mentioned, and that stands for Population Intervention Control or Comparator or Outcome. 
And that helps you frame your question. So if you've got a clinical question like, what's the best medication for Bell's palsy, as an example, you say, okay, what population am I really concerned about? Well, I'm thinking about middle-aged person with Bell's palsy. And then you're thinking about, okay, what's the intervention? If I'm looking for it, I want to know, I mean, should I be using antivirals in Bell's palsy? And what do I compare that to? Do I compare it to an active comparator? Do I compare it to some placebo? And then what's the outcome? Is it some special validated score that has patient-oriented outcomes? Like, I don't know, does my face work? Or is it just, oh, combien de spots on my face? Like, oh, you, you know, you started off with this vesicular eruption and you had 12 spots, but it was statistically lower to 12.2 spots after treating with antiviral. So things like that. So you've got to frame your question with a PICO. That's step one. Okay. So after the question is framed, you have your, suppose your tools, your outcome performances, what would be the next step? So step two is actually to go out and find it. You know, you've got to go out and search for that literature and find the evidence to answer that question that you framed with a PICO. And finding that evidence, there are various search strategies. I've seen it in action. I've seen students lift up this small device and go, Surrey, do antivirals work for Bell's palsy? But there are other more advanced search strategies that you could employ. So coming from uh, the school I did, research was very, very minimally explored during our basic science courses. And I don't think PICO is even mentioned until maybe the last semester. And really after that, you're kind of left on your own. So anyone in a graduate level degree has performed some sort of literature review at some point. But then once you start finding research that uh, has conflicting results or you're not really sure how to assess the strength of it, I guess that would be one of your next steps? Yeah. So once you've done a good search and, and how do you search for the evidence? I'll give you a little tidbit here. Just this is you and I, right? Just you and me. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay, good. So you can go to a website <laughs> called Trip Database and Trip Database is a great search engine. So you can search for available evidence and it searches secondary level evidence. And that actually gets to step three about the hierarchy of evidence. But if you go to Trip Database, it's better than just doing a Dr. Google search. It's better than Google Scholar. It's better than PubMed. It actually filters it for you using that hierarchy that has been um, published on the pyramid for evidence-based medicine. But step three is then... Once you find the evidence, how do you know which is the least biased? Because that's what you want. You want the highest form of evidence. And when I say the word bias, I'm not talking about randomness. I'm not talking about noise in the system. I'm talking about things that systematically move you away from the truth. You want to get as close to the truth as possible in science, but bias pushes you away. And so you can look at that hierarchy and, you know, there's that lowest form of evidence. Yeah, Ken told me to do this, do it this way on shift. Okay, that is a low level of evidence. You should expect more from your educators. I should back that up with some kind of citation besides, oh, I've always done it this way. You should do it this way too. But then when you move up the pyramid, you get up to the RCT. So this is after the observational studies, the cohorts, the case reports, the I saw one once. You get up to the RCTs and then you look at, okay, was it? Were they blinded RCTs? Were they randomly allocated? Were the, um, did they use a, an appropriate comparator? Did they use a straw man of some kind? But most people think, oh, okay, well, you know, a randomized double-blinded placebo-controlled trial. It's got all those fancy words. I'll just read the conclusion. It must be right. It was published. Sorry to burst your bubble. Just because it was published means it was published. It doesn't mean it's accurate or true. And there are things higher 
higher in sort of thinking than just randomized control trials. You can get up to systematic reviews and meta-analyses, but even they have problems because a systematic review and meta-analysis is when you search the literature, you have some inclusion and exclusion criteria, and you decide what to put in to this, let's say you're baking a pie. And it's like, oh yeah, I, I need this really good sugar and this high-end flour and this wonderful cream. And then I'm going to put in a cow pie. Yeah, a piece of poop. Yeah. You know, so if you're including observational studies or I said so studies or case reports, even if you mash it up and you add that crap, can I say crap? Am I going to lose your iTunes rating? If you put that crap into the pie, it doesn't make the pie taste any better, right? And so you want, oh, this, you know, and I'm not going to like revert to the natural fallacy, but you want high quality ingredients. So you want really high quality studies just because I would take a really good randomized control trial over a crappy systematic review any day of the week. That makes sense. I think a lot of us, uh, I've seen it in a lot of my fellow students in the past few years, and also a lot of preceptors and physicians as well, is getting to that first, you know, PubMed says not even systematic review a lot of times, but just RCT and then stopping there. And anything beyond that point, using a service like UpToDate or something like that to kind of fill in the blanks for you afterwards. Oh, there's layers. It's like evidence-based medicine. It's like an onion. There's layers. Okay, no, it's like a parfait and everybody loves parfaits. <laughs> uh, um, Making you hungry, aren't I? <laughs> hungry and losing my Disturbed. <laughs> yes, um, we're up to step four in case you're wondering. All right. Welcome to step four, everyone. Critical appraisal. So now you actually have to look at it and say, okay, I've got a question. I've searched for the available literature. I've tried to find what I think would be the best literature on this topic. Now I'm actually going to have to look at that piece of paper, that systematic review, that randomized control trial, or that observational study, because sometimes the best evidence is going to be weak evidence for a variety of reasons. One being you can't possibly do a randomized control trial on things involving harm. So you've got to critically appraise it. And how do you do that? There are some great checklists. Beam created a great checklist. There's the Center for Evidence-Based Medicine, where I did a a mini fellowship and got the SGEM started. That's over at Oxford. And I'm not going, oh, that's from Oxford. I'm just saying they've got a great clinical checklist there. Um, And and so they're available online. I've got, um, I've sort of SGEMinized. Can I say S-Geminized? I don't know. S-Gemmed it. Uh, you just the, made it. The Beam, I'm just making up words here. Uh, I did a one from the Beam group and then, and then spun it into um, the S-Gem and modified it a bit. So there are these critical checklists that you can have for all different types of studies, for observational studies, randomized control trials, but whether they're diagnostic, therapeutic, clinical decision instruments, various things like that, and you can go, oh, is this, is this focused on patients that I'm concerned about? No, these were outpatient uh, neurology clinics. Hmm, I'm an emergency physician. There might be some difference between the patients that get referred to an outpatient neurology clinic and everybody who shows up in the emergency department with those chief complaints. You have to go through this quality checklist, and that can help guide your critical appraisal. And it's great just with repetition to train you how to do that, and you can get good at it. So these can be found on the SGEM site, and we can link them in the show notes as well. Absolutely, yeah. The uh, The episode for that one was from Star Trek The Next Generation, and of course I photoshopped my EBM mentor's face onto, onto Captain Picard, and it was, make it so, because, you know, I felt like his, you know, number one, I was number one. You know, make it so I was his prodigy or his mentor, mentee. So the quality checklist, are there... there- 
are several different ones for the different different types of studies, I assume. Yeah. Uh, So each different type of study, whether it be an observational study, diagnostic study, randomized control trial, uh, therapeutic study, clinical decision instrument, systematic review, meta-analysis, there's multiple, multiple ones. Yes. That would be a great tool to to use during school. Just get some practice in that sort of like when you're learning how to do a history and physical, you have a certain pattern that you follow, you do it enough times and it sticks better and, and you can and, use and it from go, then on. Holy crap, that guy's good at doing a cranial nerve exam. He didn't just walk in and go, oh, there's a paper and I'm going to critically appraise it and I'm going to be good at it. That person actually drilled down and repeat, repeat, repeat and practiced correctly over and over again. And that's that's what it takes. So we're on to step five. <laughs> Yes, we've arrived at five. And step five is where you reflect back. It's where you take a step back and you say, hmm, is this going to change my practice? How does this one paper, how do I incorporate it into my knowledge overall and then clinically apply it? And we're, we're talking about evidence-based medicine here, right? And evidence-based medicine is more than just the literature. You have to now look at the literature. We've been talking about the literature. We've been talking about how to evaluate the literature with checklists and some of the biases. But now you actually have to say, okay, well, here's the literature. Here's my clinical experience. And that's a key component to evidence-based medicine. And so you need to have to think about how to incorporate that into your practice, whether you should or not. It informs your care. It doesn't dictate your care. It's not thou shalt do this based on this one paper. You've got to bring your own clinical judgment and expertise into it. And then you've actually got to talk to a patient. I know that's a radical idea in the age of electronic health records. You mean you mean I have to talk to someone and touch them? Yes. And you should involve them in shared decision-making. And that's the third key component to evidence-based medicine is, is um, the patient's values and expectations. And if you don't know what they value, how can you deliver great evidence-based care? So the five steps to review are you get your PICO, you search for the best evidence, you find the least biased, you critically appraise it, and then you go, hmm, should I be using this? Is this practice changing or practice affirming? Perfect. Great summation. Thank you. Are there any other resources that you would recommend for students? I know we've talked about the SGEM website. Obviously, there's a lot of good, useful information on there, um, your podcast, anything else that you would like to share. So I do have a link on the podcast for additional resources, and we can give that to your listeners as well, because it'll list things like books I like to read, evidence-based medicine websites, FOMED websites, uh, those types of things. But if I could give one piece of advice to your listeners it would be to learn how to be a skeptical, critical thinker just in general. And the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, and you may notice some similarities in the name because that's what inspired the name to my knowledge translation program. So the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is a general science podcast talking about science and skepticism and critical thinking. And the SGU just put out a book this year. It is fantastic. And I actually interviewed the lead author, Dr. Stephen Novella, who is a uh, Yale neurologist, and he was on my show a few weeks ago, and we can provide that link. But this book, if you, I think it should be core content on learning how to think critically and skeptically and evaluate claims. It, it's just fantastic. Perfect. We'll definitely add those in. So I do have one last question for you. Star Trek or Star Wars? Uh, Star Trek. I knew the answer. I just wanted to see how the, the main host has a fit now. <laughs> yeah, no, I I, uh, I, uh, I I identify more with Star Trek than Star Wars. They're both excellent science fiction, but I, uh, yeah, I really identified 
with uh, Captain Kirk, because that was my generation growing up, and that was one of my heroes. And then Picard is a much better captain, uh, but and, and a much better actor, <laughs> you know, as a Shakespearean <laughs> sort of thing. But William Shatner was also Shakespearean, uh, and he's Canadian, so my heart goes out to him as the original Captain Kirk. And, and what a great entertainer. What a great... I mean, this man had so much passion for everything he did. I do have to say out of all of the different offshoots that Next Gen was my favorite as well. Picard is is pretty awesome. (laughs) So Dr. Milne, any parting words? Yeah. So uh, don't panic. Uh, You didn't learn medicine overnight. You won't learn critical appraisal overnight. Critical appraisal takes time and practice. But the final advice is the advice I give at the end of my show. Be skeptical of anything you learn, even if you learned it from me. Dr. Ken Milne, Skeptical Guide to Emergency Medicine Podcast, Skeptic's Guide, I apologize. Thank you so much for your time today. Oh, this was a pleasure. I love doing this stuff. I mean, social media has shrunk the world, and and this is part of it, getting to meet new people and make new FOMED friends. It is great, and I know the audience will really enjoy the material you've covered and the material that we'll link in the show notes. All right, that is all for today. Just a reminder, our Step 1 Study Smarter series launches this week. You can go over to that channel and hear an episode with some detailed plans on what we're going to end up covering to help you, you know, score a few extra points on your step one exam. But before we conclude for today, how would you like to get your USMLE or Comlax exam registration fee paid for? Of course you would, right? So we are launching what I think is a very cool contest, actually three contests. So let me explain this a bit to you. We need your help telling the world about Inside the Boards. And we also want to do our part to support your well-being while in med school. So if you complete certain actions, you will get points or entries for each of these contests. So at the end of each month, we're giving away prizes like one-year subscriptions to our all-audio QBank, various MedEd books and resources, other ITB all-audio QBank subscriptions. And for the top three earners or winners for each month's contest, those individuals will be entered into a random drawing to win the grand prize, which is reimbursement for your USMLE or Comlex exam registration fee. You've got to be a currently enrolled medical student and submit proof there too in order to be eligible. But that's pretty sweet, right? So thanks to Physician Loans for helping us with that. So what are the things that you do or can do to get entries for the contest? All the details are in the link within our show notes, and we'll be putting up a link on our uh, homepage at insidetheboards.com as well. But You will earn entries for doing things like leaving a review of our podcasts, uh, sharing different episodes on social media, and what I think is a really good idea to help us build community and encourage healthy living and work-life balance. We're going to give you entries for basically just doing stuff you do in life, but doing it with intention. That being said, post a photo of you doing things that promote work-life balance, like walking your dog or exercising, reading a book that is not first aid, listening to music, spending time with your kids. Snap a photo, post it to your Instagram story, tag at Inside the Boards, 
and use the hashtag ListenLearnLive, you'll earn additional entries. I'll throw an example up on our Instagram page for what exactly we're looking for. And there's a whole bunch of different things you can do. So click the link in the show notes, enter the contest, get your exam fee paid for, or win other cool prizes. Help us build some community and encourage one another, regardless of whatever stage you're at within the medical education process. And of course, help us continue to grow and develop this platform so that we can serve you better. At least that's my goal. That's it. Have a good week. I just want to thank Chris Zeru and Logic for letting us use the track 1-800-273-8255 off Logic's 2017 album, Everybody. 